Welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple. Amazing. I'm Giles Brandreth, and with me is my friend Susie Dent, the world's leading lexicographer, and we're speaking to you. This podcast is coming from the stage of the Cadogan Hall in London. Yes. Off Sloane Square. Yes. It's a beautiful hall. Once upon a time, I think it was a Christian science church. Okay. Then it was acquired by Mohammed Fayed. Do you remember mm -hmm. him? Harrods. Harrods. He yeah. wanted, he wanted to have it as a home. This room that we're in now, this huge hall, seating 600 people with galleries, wonderful hall, this was going to be his sitting room. I'm not joking. This yeah. room was to be his sitting room. Well, yeah. so for those who can't see us, we are actually in a sort of quasi sitting room. So we're sitting in some lovely purple chairs with our purple cushions and our purple iPads and everything is purple, apart from Jazz's jumper, which is a snakes and ladders jumper, I think. It is. It's a reminder, if we needed it, that sometimes one goes up in life and sometimes one comes down. Yes. Uh, so that's why I'm wearing this. And we've got a lovely audience of purple people and some people who are new to the podcast. This, I think, is our 148th edition yes. of Something Rhymes with Purple. What are we wanting to discuss today? What are we going to talk about? Well, it's been very easy to get sort of down, hasn't it, in the last few years, and to get sort of bogged down, I suppose, in the language of despair, because so many of us have been feeling that over the, the last couple of years. And actually, if you look in a dictionary, English reflects that a lot of the time. So dictionaries love to be negative, reflecting, of course, the fact that we love to be negative. So they are full of words that are sort of quite bad and sad and dwell on the seamy side of life, if you like. But today, we're going to buck the trend and we're going to talk about words for happiness and positivity because we thought that was a good theme for the year to come. So we're going to accentuate the positive. We are. When you say that the language is negative, mm. in terms of emotions, there are many more words, you're telling me, that describe the depressing, the down, yes. than there are that describe the positive and the up. Yes. And when you say that, how do you know that? Have you been through the dictionary counting or is this just <laughs> anecdotal? No, but you can just tell. You get a flavour every time you visit the dictionary. So I used to think it was just dialect dictionaries because I do genuinely spend quite a lot of my time just flicking through dictionaries. You know, I do it on the podcast as well, don't I? I'm, I'm literally looking at my screen, looking at virtual dictionaries. And if you look in a dialect dictionary, regional language, you will see that we love to gossip about other people and we love to insult them. So go back 50 years and you will find hundreds of words for people who are bow-legged, bandy-legged, sort of have smelly armpits. I mean, we just, um, yes, that does, does not include you, Giles. So I have never had the occasion to use it. But lots and lots and lots of different words for those. And I thought, okay, that makes sense because dialect is largely spoken and we are gossipy by nature. But actually look in the normal OED as well. And it's quite difficult to pull out the positive words. And when I do find one, I just leap on it and think, finally, you know, this is one that we can use. So as, as we will see, I mean, take the letter A, okay? So yeah. I've, I've, I've just just taken a handful of words from the letter uh, A, just to give you a flavour. So there's apanthropy. Apanthropy. Yeah, so apanthropy is the desire to be away from other people, um, which I always think is quite useful at Christmas time. If you're feeling slightly apanthropic, it's just, please leave me alone, that kind of sentiment. Then you've got abhorrence. Abhorrence. Then you've got abdabs, is in the screaming variety. Hold on. Give me the origins of abhorrence. Abhorrence. So to is abhor something, 
Yes, and the horare bit actually gave us horror and horrible, as well as horripilation. So do you know what horripilation is? I, I'm taking, I've got some cream for it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> horripilations, what is horripilation? Yes, well, you might have cream for it. It is when your hair stands on end. Oh. Um, so, uh, yeah, so horripilation is, you know when you get those cartoon cats, the scaredy cats and their hairs just sort of standing up in a kind of shock. Um, that is exactly what horripilation is. So that is what something abhorrent does to This you. is why people listen to something rhymes with purple. Uh, there is a word for the hair standing up on the back of the cat and it's horripilation. Horripilation. So when you see that, ah, like that, yes. oh, look at that horripilation. Yes, and oh, that's amazing. what gave us horror, as I say, abhorrent. Anything that just makes you kind of Stand back um, okay. in horror. Then there's all overish. If you're feeling a bit all overish, that is probably the 18th century equivalent of meh, as well as fobbly mobbly, uh, which is me. one of my favourites. All overish mm. is that old, mm. and that means oh, how are you feeling? All overish. Yeah, a bit all overish, just a bit. Mm. And um, this meh that you use, that's M E H, is it? M E H. We never use is, that. What is, I, I, no. <laughs> <laughs> what is okay. the what is the origin of? Well, M -E -H? it's just. It's kind of, if you were to express it in emoji terms, it would just be a sort of straight face. Has anyone seen the emoji movie? No? Okay. Um, there is, uh, it's, it's not the best, to be fair, but, but there is a lovely emoji who is meh and wants to be anything but. So it's a just kind of, mm, well, you know, I'm just meh. Nah. Meh. And yeah. how recent is meh? Very. So it, I think if not this century, then very late 20th century. Quite a few words come from The Simpsons, the television series. Do is what you're thinking. Do, do, yeah. D-O-H. Okay, go and on. I'm going to stick with the A's. So we have exedia. Who? So exedia is, uh, it goes back to the Greek for without and then care, without care or concern. So that means it's not really so much carelessness in the sense of you are not taking consideration of other people's feelings, but it just means total kind of apathy and unwillingness to do anything. And that, of course, was seen as being quite sinful because you were doing absolutely nothing for yourself or for society. And there was one ascetic, you know, the people who just sort of lived very kind of pared down lives, ascetic, ascetic. I would say ascetic. 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 Is that A-S-C-E? Yes, ascetic acid. I should know this. That's vinegar, isn't it? Yeah, A-C-E. T I C, isn't it? A S C A S C E T I C. And this was um, one who lived in the Egyptian desert, and he called Exedia the demon of noontide. Demon of noontide. Yes. So that was when he wanted to sleep and do nothing at yeah. all. So anyway, it's just another example of something that's not particularly good in the dictionary. And then you have one of my favourite recent words, recent coinages, which is a blend. So one of the most productive ways of creating new words these days is. Um, mashing together existing words. And we've been doing it for ages, as we always say, you know, with brunch, and we've had bromance and that kind of thing. This is antisappointment. And antisappointment is when you've been really looking forward to something for so long. Hopefully this is not going to apply today. And then you, you know, you're there and it's just, ugh. it's that, antisappointment. I think it's a brilliant word, antisappointment, because that happens yes. so often, doesn't it? It does. Or I suppose it could also mean just the knowledge that something is going to be disappointing, I suppose. But I prefer the first one because we've all been there. Anyway, there are so many. But actually, in between these, just in the corners of the dictionary, you will find something called ataraxy, which is such a horrible sounding word. But actually, spell it out to me. A-T-A-R-A-X-Y, ataraxy. Ataraxy. And it means a state of serenity. Again, from the Greek for being not, not being disturbed. 
Not a very nice sounding word, but it is there. But shall I tell you where happiness itself comes from? I want to know about that. Because we're going to talk about being happy. And in some ways, this just sort of sums it up, really, because it's all about chance or luck. That's exactly what hap meant. It was your fate. You left it up to your destiny to bring you good fortune. Mm -hmm. So to be happy actually was to be blessed with good fortune, but it was a matter of sheer luck. And that hap survives in perhaps, perhaps meaning by good fortune or by fortune, in other words, you know, what will come will come. And also hapless. If you are hapless, you have bad luck and so are a bit clumsy with it. Very good. Okay. Any other A positive words? Well, not just A's, but I was going to tell you about the orphaned negatives that I so often talk about and made it a bit of a mission last year, the last couple of years, to bring them back. Do you know what I mean by an orphaned negative? No. Okay. So this is the thing about being a lexicographer. Lexicographer itself is such an unsexy, unappetizing word, isn't it? Lexicographer. It's very hard to say. And the job that I do comes with vocabulary that sounds really alien and off-putting. So we study these beautiful, vast databases of current language, whether it's text messages or chat rooms, blogs, um, transcripts of newspapers, tabloids, journals, novels, you name it. And that's how we study language in action. And they are called corpora. And yet they are the most amazing living things. So um, orphaned negatives, another, another sort of slightly strange word, but these are the words that actually began with a positive most, most of the time. And then the positives just fell away and we are stuck with their negative like counterparts. Like unkempt. Unkempt. Kempt is a real word, is it? Kempt is a real word. It goes back to the German uh, gekempt, meaning well combed. Lovely. Yes, yeah, so if you're kempt, you're but, well turned out. But unkempt is the word we use all the time, yeah. meaning not well turned out. Couth. You can be couthy in Scotland if you're nice and polite. Couthy. Couthy. But you are uncouth these days yeah. because that's the way that we prefer to see the world. And thanks to P.G. Woodhouse, one of your favourites, uh, we could be gruntled as well. Oh, that was a genuine word? That was, his, um, well, to be, to be fair, gruntled was in the dictionary before, meaning to grunt like a pig or grunted like a pig. Ah. But he introduced it. He said, I can't remember, I can't remember which book it was, but he said he was, if not disgruntled, he was on the way to being gruntled or something like that. Oh. So he was the first to give it to us. Lovely. Yeah, which is lovely. And then you could be wieldy, you could be pecunious, you could be um, full of gorm. As well, as well oh, as gormless. Full of gorm, so it's a Viking So somebody, word. oh, you're really gorm. Yeah. That's a compliment. You'd be full of gorm. So gorm was care, heed, consideration. Oh, so you're somebody, oh, how yeah. interesting, because I think if we, we use the word gormless, it would be meaning stupid. They're gormless. Yeah, but not, it's just being But that doesn't, so heedless. in fact it means heedless. Heedless, un, I mean Unthinking, that's, unthinking, thoughtless. Unthinking, yeah. Yeah, but gormless is almost, I suppose, you're sort of clumsy because you're not paying attention, possibly. But to be gorm-like was to have an intelligent look about you, ah, which is great. Is nice. So these are all for negatives. So we have lost those. You could be full of Ruth as well. Ruth meant compassion. You could be feckful as well as feckless. And so the list goes on and on and so on. So what you're proving to me is that we like to accentuate the negative. Yes, we do. I do remember you saying to me, but I can't believe this is true, that there are virtually no synonyms for love, yeah. but there are a multitude for hate. Yes. Just unwrap that. Hmm. What do you mean when you say that? Well, there, if you look in, this is the brilliant thing about 
the Oxford English Dictionary, for anyone who can get their hands on it, and you can get it online now as well, is that it actually now has a historical thesaurus attached to it. So you can look up any word, gormless being one of them, and click on the thesaurus thing, and you will find all, all the synonyms for that particular word through history. A thesaurus is what? A thesaurus is a collection of synonyms, really, but it goes back to the Greek for treasure house. A thesaurus is a treasure house. It's a treasure house, yeah. I it's love it. Treasure. Yeah. So if you look up love and you look up hate, you're telling me the list under hate is a lot longer than the yes, list under love. It is, unfortunately. And if you go back to Old English, it wasn't really always that way. So there was a great word, win, which was actually part of the runic alphabet, but that meant joy and happiness. And you could find all sorts of different, uh, it was W-Y-N-N. Um, you could find all sorts of different kinds of joy and different kinds of love. But those have faded away. So we really only have love. And love is such, a, I mean, there are so many aspects of love, you know, so many different manifestations Is this the of noun love. love, you mean, rather than the verb? Yeah. Yes, but even as the verb, you know, there aren't really that many that would express it. No, um, right. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I love you is different from I like you or I fancy you or I respect you or, yeah, I'm seeing what you say. Yeah. Whereas I hate you, you can do it all sorts. Of, I hate you, I loathe you, I despise you. Oh, I'm, I'm warming to this. Just go to Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. And insults, talking of Shakespeare, I mean, you can find the best insults, which quite often I intend to on my Twitter feed, if anybody um, has ever looked, because um, they are just amazing, the insults in the dictionary. But it's really hard. I mean, as you will know, we've done 148 of these podcasts, and the words that I always come back to, because they're such rare delights in our dictionary, are words like rispair, which I talk about all the time. Rispair. Rispair, the opposite of despair, which is fresh hope and a recovery from despair, that's one of them. And confelicity, which is the opposite in a way of schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is pleasure in someone else's unhappiness or pain. Confelicity is joy in other people's happiness. Felicity does mean happiness, it doesn't does, it? Yeah. Because Felix, as in Felix, people often call their cats Felix. And there was a famous cartoon cat called Felix. Felix yeah. is Latin for happy. Yeah. So felicity. Yeah is basically happiness. It is. So it's often used as a girl's name, Felicity, and that simply means joy, happiness. Exactly, and the con bit means with. Lovely. Well, I've been in pursuit of happiness uh, in a professional way for some years. And I went, about 20 years ago, I, I went to see a, a wonderful psychiatrist called Dr. Anthony Clare. Yes. He used to do a radio program called In the Psychiatrist Chair. Yeah, yeah. And I, I went to see him to talk about happiness who gets to be happy, how and why. And together, he and I sort of evolved the seven secrets of happiness. And, and I might drip some of those into our, our conversation What's today. number one? What well, number one? yeah, I'll give you number one. What's interesting, though, is what is happiness? What to you is happiness? And a lot of people, I think, confuse happiness with ecstasy. I mean, happiness, I think, is that mellow sense of being at ease, that things are are right. But sometimes people confuse it with ecstasy, a high, you know, that you can get maybe from drinking or from something exciting happening. I think that after every high, there can be a low. What is the origin of ecstasy as opposed so to... Ecstasy is a, is a Greek word, really, and it just meant... It, it did actually mean rapture, so very much the same thing. Yeah. Um, whereas as happy, as I say, was much more about chance or fortune. Well, happiness is important because the research shows that happy people tend to live seven to ten years longer than unhappy people. So it's worth pursuing happiness. Though, interestingly, it is... A fairly modern idea, the idea of being happy. We all now expect to be happy 
all the time, you know, yeah. uh, as a right. Whereas in ancient times, people didn't. If you look at the book of Psalms, uh, people were told that life was a veil of tears. People of my grandparents' generation, certainly their grandparents' generation, they assumed that happiness was for the next world. That's why it's called heaven. What's the origin of heaven? Heaven is, um, gosh, that's a really good question. <laughs> I don't know where heaven comes. I'm going to have to look up in the dictionary. Obviously, you're not planning to go um, there. No. Um, <laughs> I, should, I went to a convent. Please don't tell the nuns that I don't know the etymology of heaven. <laughs> it's just not good. Just leave it with me. Okay, I'll leave it with Rome. But people used to think that the grave was the way to lead you to heaven. Paradise. It wasn't for this world. Life was a veil of tears. And then I think with the coming of uh, the American Constitution and the idea of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness being the right of every American, it became the idea that we could all have access to this thing called happiness. Yes, so I know where hell comes from, by the way. Oh, uh, where does hell come hell from? Hell comes from um, a really old word meaning to cover or conceal. So the idea has always been that it's kind of underground and it's covered. So clearly that's where I've been expecting to go. And <laughs> I don't know the etymology of heaven. But yeah, anyway, I'm going to No, you carry on looking for yeah. heaven while I go on explaining about this. So I, I went to see Anthony Clare and uh, we, uh, he put me in the psychiatrist's chair. And the first thing we began talking about was my parents, because I, I, I said to him, now explain this to me, Dr. Clare. My father had recently died. And I think that was one of the reasons that I was interested in having this conversation ab about happiness, because I was feeling low, understandably, because of losing my father. And I said, tell me this, why, do, why did my parents often talk about the Second World War as the happiest time of their lives? Uh, people of their generation, I said, sometimes do. I said, because during the Second World War, my mother was young, mother, and it was before I was born, I was born after the war, but she had my sisters who were much older than me and they were born just before the Second World War. And they were little babies. And she lived in London, bombs were falling. And she talked about it as the happiest time of her life. And my father, like many of your grandfathers or great-grandfathers, would have served in the Second World War, uh, risking their lives for six long years. Why on earth would people of that generation talk about that time as the happiest time of their lives. You know, that's easy to explain. I said, really? Well, tell me. He said, yes. He said, um, your mother, yes, bombs were falling on the flat she lived in in London, but there was a sense of community in London during the war. There was a sense of solidarity, of shared values, of common purpose. And that sense of community and shared values makes people very happy. So there was contentment from that. And your father, yes, the soldiers, the sailors, the airmen during the Second World War, risking their lives on a daily basis. But they were also on a daily basis being tested. And all the research shows that being tested, being challenged, is a key element to finding happiness in life. You very rarely find happy people sitting around not doing very much. An engagement with life, being tested, being challenged, is key to finding happiness. So from that, I began to realize that what we think makes us happy is not necessarily the obvious things that make us happy. So before we take our break, I'll just maybe share one of those with you, one of the seven secrets. The first, in a way, was to be a leaf on a tree. That relates to having common values and a shared sense of community. What does it mean, being a leaf on a tree? Well, we all are unique. Every single person is unique. You're unique, I'm unique, all of us here is unique. But like every leaf on every tree, tree is separate, unique. But a leaf off a tree, well, it floats about a bit. It feels free. That's quite exciting. But quite quickly, it floats to the ground and it dies. 
The point is, if you're a leaf on a tree, you're attached to something that is larger than yourself and still growing. Yeah. And in a way, in a curious way, us being here with these people is part of us being a leaf on a tree. Because if you're self-employed, as we are, it's more difficult to be, and uh, older people find it difficult to be a leaf on a tree once they become isolated. My mother, for example, when my father died, she lived alone in her flat in London. Uh, she was then retired. There was no tree for her to be a leaf on. And in fact, she brilliantly, sensibly, even though she was then in her 70s, went to live in America. She got a job in a school. She became part of a community. Brilliant. She became part of something that was growing again. It can be anything. A leaf on a tree, you can belong to a golf club. You can belong to a choir. You can belong to a group of people that, like the purple people. Something that is larger than yourself and still growing. We all need to be leaves on a tree. So that's one of the seven secrets of happiness. What's intriguing about the seven secrets is you need all seven of them to have happiness. One of them on its own, just being a leaf on a tree, is not sufficient of itself. You need all the others as well. And I, I may drip those in later. But one thing I will share with you, because it's quite amusing, is this. Because my mother was still alive and my father had died, we began talking about this. I said to Dr. Clare, what sort of people get to be happy? You know, are rich people happier than poor people? He said, no, no. He said, great riches does not make you particularly happy. Look at the newspapers. You'll see endless stories of that. I said, what about being beautiful? Does being beautiful make you happier than being ugly? He said, curiously, uh, not. He said, human beings find extremes of any kind quite difficult to cope with. So very beautiful people find it quite difficult to form relationships. Uh, Marilyn Monroe, very, very beautiful, but not very, very happy. So if you're more homely looking, you're going to be happier than if you're very beautiful, which is, I must say, good news for this audience. Uh, <laughs> but this will, this will amuse you. Uh, I said, what about married people? And he said, well, on the whole, married people are marginally happier than unmarried people, and married men tend to be happier than married women, on the whole. He said, but an interesting thing happens when, with two married people, he married a while, one of the parties dies. He said, a couple, when they've been married, if the wife dies, the husband, within three years, he will either have remarried or he will be dead himself. Wow. Within you know, long-standing couple, one of them dies, the wife dies, the husband, within three years. He showed me the, sorry, he showed me the charts. Within three years, the husband has either found a new partner or he is dead himself. And I said, what happens when it's the other way around? He said, well, when it's the other way around, when the husband dies for the woman, it makes no difference whatsoever. <laughs> I love that. Um, I'm feeling slightly better about not knowing the etymology of heaven because nobody does. It says origin unknown. And interestingly, it might also go back to the idea of being covered in a word meaning that, but who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Thank, Thank you. you. We're back. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are back. Oh, we are back. Oh, well, wasn't that an exciting interval? Oh, that's marvelous. There were some traumatic moments during the interval because more than one person came up and said, Doe, Doe. <laughs> Nothing to do with The Simpsons, much earlier than that. Laurel and Hardy. Oh. 
That's what they're all saying. Wow. So are, are they well, right? Well, I do know that the... I'm just trying to find um, if I can actually work, work out how to use an iPad. I do know that The Simpsons is credited in the OED, but whether or not it's the first one, I can... If you keep talking, just But I mean, you see, good not everybody knows everything. The, the, it's rather nice to find that the Oxford English Dictionary doesn't always get it right. Or actually, it may get it right because it actually has different standards from others. Well, the work goes on. That's the, you know, we were talking about this yeah. the other day. It's an ongoing thing. So the word detection and the word archaeology, you know, will go on. So, okay, I'm looking at doe. This is the do, musical doe. a deer, doe. a yeah. female deer. Um, yeah, thank you. Oh, good. Oh, yes. Let's do, while she's looking up, should we do some group singing? Uh, oh, that's lovely. Let's see how far we can get with that one. Uh, is, does it begin with doe? Oh. Like, doe, a deer, a female deer, a, 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 a sun, far away. <laughs> I call myself far, a long, long way to run. Oh, Oh, this, you are, what a musical, oh, I mean, honestly, did you, I sense there was almost an erotic charge during that. <laughs> I mean, we all just came together in the most amazing way. As per usual, when there was an erotic charge, I was looking at the dictionary. Um, <laughs> and I can tell you, um, 1945, and it was that radio show, Itma. Itma. Yes, Itma. it's, it's that, that man again. That's the first mention of Doe. And then the Simpsons are there, but not until, um, yeah, much, much later. So there yeah. you go. It's pronounced Itma, yeah. not Itma. Oh, sorry. Just, yeah, that the advantage of having an older person here <laughs> uh, is that I actually met Richard Murdoch, the man, one of the people who was the stars of Itma. Anyway, it's by that. So I'm, I'm turning that. away from you because um, a very kind lady in the audience said that Sneezed she couldn't quite hear. So I'm turning more towards oh. you. So sorry about that. I was turning more towards Giles before. I thought it was because you felt I was spitting at you. I don't <laughs> well, to. that's true. Do you remember the, the German word for pretending not to notice when someone is spitting at you in, com in conversation? There's a German word for, for pretending not to notice when somebody spits at you. Only the Germans would need to think of such a word. <laughs> what is the word? Uh, the word is Speichelgleichmut, which means saliva stoicism. That's what I have. That's brilliant. This is why people tune into the podcast. And we've had people getting in touch with us. And what have they been writing to us um, about? So we have people from our audience. This is one for you, Giles. This is from Pip Leonard. We know Susie hates flange as a word. I mean, who actually likes the word flange? Is anybody like the word flange here? Oh, OK. Uh, <laughs> there's always one. Yeah, there's three. Uh, what is your least favourite word, Giles? Mucus. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a horrid word to spell, isn't it? Because I'm never quite sure if it's one C or two. One. It's one C. Ooh, oh, it's a very good word then for wordle, isn't it? Mucus, M-U-C-U-S. It's a five-letter word. In a way, I chose mucus because I don't like the idea of mucus. It's because of the association. One of Su word that Susie introduced me to is apricity, A-P-R-I-C-I-T-Y 
which is a word that describes that sensation of warmth on your back when the sun is shining on you. And I love that. We were talking about happiness earlier. That for me epitomizes happiness, that feeling of warmth. But apricity isn't for me a very warm word. It's quite a cold I think if you say apricity, I think it sounds beautiful. Oh, as in April. A lot of people wonder if it's linked to the apricot. Um, And it might share an ancient root, but the apricot goes back to the idea of being um, precocious. It's linked to precocious because it ripens early. Um, So that's where that one comes from. But I think apricity has got a beautiful sound to it. Apricity. The feeling of that is one of my favourites. The reason I don't like mucus is because the idea of mucus is rather... Yeah, it's all about the psychology. But I have, as I often say to you, I have moved on from the M word now. I can stay moist and I feel fine. Ah. Yeah. Is that the word that comes top of the list for most people don't always. like? Always, yes. But I, I think I decided that too many people didn't like it, so it needed to be loved. Okay. I'm not sure I'm there with the love bit yet, but... Okay. And I always put it together with Gusset, do you remember? Oh, Gusset. <laughs> yes, there's something quite horrible. uncomfortable about the word Gusset, isn't there? You'll yes. be advertising them soon. Um, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this is from, what a name, Troy Ezra. That is the most amazing Troy name. Ezra I is in the this. room. Are you related to George? Oh, okay. It's a brilliant, brilliant name. Why do we have so many words that mean very different things, starting with para, paragraph, paranoid, etc.? Well, para meant essentially for the Greek, it was beside. So a parasite, for example, is somebody who sits beside you at the table and pinches your food. That was the original word for that. And uh, we have paranoid, because paranoid means to be beside your mind. So it's almost like you are beside yourself. So para, beside, and then it comes from the Greek for mind, nous. So beside or through is quite often uh, where para comes in. And paragraph goes back to the idea that there was a marker in a manuscript that showed for a division of the text. So it's beside the main text. Um, if you like. So they do often quite have a common thread um, to them, but suffixes and prefixes in language are really complicated. Paradigm. 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 What does that mean? Yeah, so a paradigm, that's a really good one. Okay, I'm going to listen. So you ask me all sorts of complicated A paradigm is a kind of perfect pattern, isn't it? A paradigm for Yeah, it's a model, isn't it? A A paradigm. Yeah, so that would be an example of model, and it comes from parabicide, and then actually... We're not sure about this, but it's, um, it is linked to a Latin word meaning to show. So it's to show, to set alongside something else so you can follow it, I suppose. It's a model or pattern to follow. Very yeah, okay. I like that. I'm just going back to the questions here. We have something from Harriet, our producer. You've skipped some of the script. So if you have a chance to go back, that would be great. <laughs> what? Thanks, Harriet. Uh, okay, um, we'll go back to that, but there's one, one more here. I'm not sure, Richard, how, if I'm pronouncing your uh, name right. Katma? Yeah, thank you, Richard. Can you shed some light on the origins of palm of the hand? Is it anything to do with the trees? And yes, it does, because the idea is that the palm leaves actually look like fingers. And fingers come into lots of different things, lots of different pies, <laughs> because um, date as well. Dates of the year were originally counted on the fingers and the date that is a fruit goes back to, or it comes from a tree that has leaves like well, fingers. Well, hold on. Why aren't there 10 days in the week and 10 months in the year? Well, on your we used to count to 10. So that is essentially 
how we used to count up. So hang on, let me keep with the dates. So the fruit that is a date comes from a tree which also had, has leaves, certain varieties that look like fingers. And they all go back to dactylos, meaning fingers. So those are all linked as well. Like, what did you just ask me? Well, if you're saying that fingers give you the number of days in the week yes. and months in the year, yes. why aren't there 10 days? Well, that's days? why we get digits. So digits are fingers. So the idea of digits, that was one to 10 originally. I appreciate that. Yes. That, that bit yes. I've absorbed. So I don't know why we But you were linking it to dates. I don't and I'm know. simply saying, Honestly, why are there not 10 days in the week? Yeah, well, different numbering and, systems, oh, they're really complicated. I think go back to the ancient Egyptians, they had a different one and it was all linked into the planets and the, and the um, planetary influences and, and stars, etc. We so, could do a whole episode on this, actually. On counting. On dates and on counting time. Yeah. Our plan is to come back occasionally to the Cadogan Hall. And if we do, we will always come with a different subject to talk about. So it won't be the same old stuff. Uh, so we might talk about dates next time. Yes. Yeah, anyway, go on. Um, right, Other well, questions? I'm going to try and... I'm gonna, we haven't got any more questions here, I think, but I am going to try and answer Harriet's questions to what we've missed out, um, which is... Oh, yes. Happiness, seventh heaven and cloud nine. I think Harriet really likes these, so she wants us the to The definition of being on cloud nine. And in seventh heaven. And in seventh heaven. Yes. Tell us So both. do you know these? Cloud nine, I think, dates back to somebody like Aeschylus or Aristophanes. Hmm. Okay. Well. <laughs> over the years, I just let um, people into this. Over the years, I find this is a very useful way of flooring her. Um, I, I usually say, I think you'll find Plato says something quite interesting on this. And for a moment, she's lost. Um, I have to say, the first time I met you on Countdown, I think I was astounded because you would, you would come across a word and then you would say, uh, yes. First used in 1822 by Harold Estner. And I was thinking, how does he know this? This is not in the dictionary. And it turned out that quite often it was just something to say. <laughs> <laughs> it was so convincing. The truth but is. For ages, I thought, like, I yes. was so, so impressed. That, now, this is, if you're regularly listening to this, basically, I invent things as I go along. <laughs> it does. And Susie checks it in the dictionary. But I have to invent things as I go along to give her time to check it in the dictionary. That's true. That is, that is very true. But okay, not. so at cloud nine, there was, in fact, a cloud eight and a cloud seven originally. So when it comes to numbers, and it would be a lovely uh, theme to revisit, it quite often these are just arbitrary choices. So we have dressed to the nines, and there are so many, um, you know, theories as to why that is, to give it the full nine yards, that kind of thing, the whole nine yards. Uh, but in this one, there was a cloud eight, and there's a lovely quote from the comedian George Carlin, who said, cloud nine gets all the publicity, but cloud eight is actually cheaper, less crowded, and has a better view, <laughs> uh, which I like. But what, what, what were cloud seven and eight? What was the point of them? What? Uh, so the idea is there was an international cloud atlas. So this is where some people point to the origin. And it class classified 10 basic types of cloud. And the loftiest one and the fluffiest one was the cumulonimbus. So the idea was that if you were on that one, you were high above, just enraptured really in the heavens. Um, but also there was a radio show in the 1960s in the US in which a character called Johnny Dollar did you ever listen to this? No, because it was in the US. And he was a fictional insurance investigator and he used to get up to all sorts of scrapes. And uh, whenever he was knocked unconscious, he would be taken to cloud nine and that's where he would recover. So a uh, really sweet history. And, and seventh heaven is just in a lot of um, religions, a lot of theology, I think it's Islamic theology um, and in, in the Talmud, in Jewish theology, God 
is said to exist in the seventh heaven with the angels, dwell with the angels and the souls of the righteous and of the unborn. So to be there is to be with God. I love the idea of angels with wings. Yeah. I'd be so disappointed if I get to heaven, it's not like that. I want it all on clouds and I want lots of angels. No, oh, angels. So lots and lots of fluffy clouds. And I, and I want some Peter at the gate with a big book, you know, checking. Uh, I'd be so annoyed when I see you going through the fast track ahead of me. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Any more questions? No, well, I've got some lovely well, more words for you, and then oh, we can go to the audience, yes. definitely. Um, so what you were going to ask me, I know, because I could just see it was coming to you, is if you were going to ask me whether there were words in other languages that are better at conveying happiness than English is. Isn't that what you were going to ask No, me? not for a moment. <laughs> this is... Something rhymes the purple, we celebrate the English language, the joys, the English language. But okay. of course, we have to be inclusive nowadays. And you want us to include uh, foreign tongues? Are there words, Susie, in other <laughs> languages that express well, happiness? Funny you should ask that. So, yes, uh, that, well, German is, as I was saying to a lady in the audience just before the interval, that was my first love. So I will always come back to German. And there's a great word in German for pleasurable pain. And I'm not talking about the kind of sadomasochistic kind. I'm just talking about if you have a really itchy mosquito bite and there is something incredibly nice about scratching it, even though you know it's going to sting like hell afterwards. And that's called volve, pleasurable pain, volve. And we don't really have a Say word Say that again, that. what's the word? Vol, W-O-H-L-V, W-E-H. Volve. Yes. Volve. Yeah. Pleasurable pain. Sure, you don't like that one. Okay, so um, there is also um, this is a very recent coinage, and we love to go back to classical languages if we want to invent a new word because it just sounds posh and it sounds good. And this is strike hedonia. Now, hedonia, as you might guess, is linked to hedonism and um, hedonist. It's all about pleasure. And strike is in the sense of striking out to a new destination. So, strike hedonia is the pleasure of saying to hell with it. Oh, I like it's great, that. isn't it? Strike Yeah. Anyway, Giles, we've got to do it before. We, we've got to finish in a minute. Yeah, we have. We've got to do my trio. So, no, we've got to do the trio. Oh, we've got to do the trio. Yes. Oh, yes. We we've have. got to, before we get a note saying, don't forget to do the trio, yes. let's do the trio. Thank you for your questions. I'm sorry we haven't had time to answer them all. We yes. will be back at the Cadogan Hall in March, March, I think, and we maybe will give more time to questions that yeah, time. Of maybe course. We should do that. Meanwhile, if you want to send us an email, purple at something else.com, uh, we will attempt to answer your questions. Yeah, thank you for all your submissions for, um, for my trio. So at the end of the podcast, I always give a trio of words. They may not be something that you, things that you will use necessarily in everyday life, but for me, they just, uh, you know, they just illustrate something about the joy of words. So the first one was, what might periplus mean? How do we spell that? P-E-R-I-P-L-U-S. Okay? Periplus. 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 So this one comes from Russell Boots Taylor in Saturn, from Saturn. So a peri plus, says Russell, is the secret off the menu sauce at Nando's, which, if overindulged in, may make you walk funny for 13 days. <laughs> Unlucky for some, uh, which is brilliant. And then Fingers Singleton from Marylebone says, even more than one expected to see from a submarine, a peri plus. Oh, very good. Peri plus. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Um, periscope plus. Good. Periscope plus. And then Phil Welch from Catford, a person who through an accident of birth has one more perineum than the norm, <laughs> uh, which is great. Now, those um, are fun ones. Those are fun ones. Should I give you mine and then you yes. tell us what the real one is? Yes. 
I, well, I think this might be the real one. Is it something to do with fairies? P-E-R-I. No. Ah. Okay. P-E-R-I to do with fairies. Yes, I thought Perry was a word for a fairy. It is, th okay. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Do you want to do a podcast? Because I think <laughs> you could be very useful. Okay, what is the real okay, Perry? Okay, it's simply Plus? Um, an account or narrative of a circumnavigation. So a Perry Plus is a voyage around the world. Oh, like going yes. around the perimeter. Yes. So the next word is shiviness. So Sally Burgess from Cambridge, Shiviness is a rumoured ancient animal resident of a Scottish loch armed with a makeshift stabbing device. Ah, the shiv. Okay, Harry E from London, the sense of loss you feel when a series of succession ends. It's very good. <laughs> the third one is from Novak Djokovic. Um, from his immigration hotel, to be cold whilst in hot water, i.e. out oh, in the cold. I.e. out in the cold whilst the temp is 50 degrees and awaiting deportation. Uh, so, is that shiviness? Do you want to have an idea? No, I think those were so good. Okay, What's this the... is a really strange one. I don't think any of us are likely to need to use this in everyday life, but you never know. Shiviness, you will find in an old dialect dictionary, and it means the uncomfortableness of wearing new underwear. <laughs> and actually, a shiv, uh, we've also got the, the knife sense, but also it's um, a splinter, so it makes you feel like maybe they were just sort of very full of husks. Okay, and the third one, um, actually, I thought this might encourage some of you, and it certainly has. Dispester, dispester, uh, is in the OED, and I love this one. This is from Nathan Tovery from Newcastle. Dispester is not that pester. I <laughs> <laughs> really like that one. Um, Natalie Emden from London. Dispester is to cease giving the person opposite you on the tube the skunk eye over the top of your mask as they aren't wearing one. Oh, that's good. Yes. And this is the one which I, I was expecting in some ways. Jeff Smith from Manchester. To dispester is to remove bumbling ministers from office. Very good. And actually, Jeff, you are the closest on this one because dispester is simply to get rid of a pest. Very good. To dispester. Yeah, to Very good. So have we almost reached the end of we the show? We have, but you have a poem, I think, to share. Well, what happens normally is that we end the show with three amazing words from Susie, and I normally read or recite a, a poem. And today it's really a poem in prose, because we were talking about the seven secrets of happiness. Yeah. I, only, I only mentioned one. Uh, there are so many. Well, there are seven of them. Uh, and indeed, I, I've written a little book called The Seven Secrets of Happiness where you can find the others. And maybe in coming weeks, I might drop the odd one in for people. But anyway, the first one is, remember, to be a leaf on a tree. Yeah. The second one, incidentally, is to cultivate a passion, something you really love doing in life. And for me, words is my passion. You need to have something usually beyond your work that is your true passion in life. So cultivate a passion is one. But um, one of the obvious ones, actually, is simply to, to be happy, to, to live in the moment, to savor the moment. Carpe diem, what does that mean? Live, seize the day. Seize the day. Carpe diem, that's one of the secrets of being happy, to be happy, to live in the moment. And here's some lines from William Saroyan. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. He was a, an American playwright, mainly. 
and I've seen a couple of his plays. They were remarkable. I don't know why he's not better known. William Soroyan, William Soroyan. Anyway, I, in one of his plays, I came across this, which for me reads like a poem. And it's about, in the essence, living in the moment. Try to learn to breathe deeply, really to taste food when you eat. And when you sleep, really to sleep. Try as much as possible to be wholly alive with all your might. And when you laugh, laugh like hell. Try to be alive. When you get angry, get good and angry. Be alive, be alive. You'll be dead soon enough. Thank you.